Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on November 21st by our lead pastor, Rod Heppel. Today is the 10th sermon in our Fall 2021 sermon series entitled, Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Today we are on Acts chapter 10. It's our final sermon in this series before Christmas. In the new year, we're going to come back to Acts and carry on in this study. But this is the conversion of Cornelius, a centurion, a Gentile. And many believe this to be the story, which is kind of like the climactic moment that Luke is putting this story in here on purpose, that kind of encompasses the entire first part of Acts. And it's because it's fulfilling the words of Jesus in Acts 1.8. We've been talking about this, and we've shown this slide before, where he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And so this here is a representation of that ends of the earth type message. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been talking about this progression of the gospel as it's gone outward. You might remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the persecution that took place in Jerusalem and all of those Christians were scattered. And as they went out into the Judean hillsides and into Samaria, they took the gospel with them. They shared it with others. And then those people became Christians. Um, And then we had the story after the Samaritans came to faith in Christ. We had the story about that African uh, Ethiopian eunuch and how Philip took the gospel to him and he becomes a Christian. And then we saw last week when Joel preached on the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And a great message, by the way, if you missed it, go back and listen to that message. And this Saul was like opposing the church, persecuting this Christian movement, right? And even the hardened heart of Saul was changed by God. And so today we come to this story of Cornelius, and it's just in that line of thought that Luke has where he's showing how the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. And that statement right there we need to understand. That geographically, yes, it will go out to the ends of the earth, but it's included for the people who live close to Jerusalem who never would have been considered as part of this Jewish Christian faith community, the Gentiles. And remember this, that Luke is writing this book to Theophilus. He is a a governing official, probably a Roman governing official, probably a Gentile. And imagine what he's thinking when he reads this story about a centurion and coming to faith in Christ. So I think Luke has a lot of intentionality in this story here for us to learn from today. Now, as we go through the story about Cornelius and Peter, we're going to see that really it's a story about two conversions. One, about Cornelius coming to faith in Christ, but secondly, about Peter and the change of heart that he has to finally come to the understanding that this gospel truly is for all people. And so it's in a way a conversion for Peter himself. Our story takes place in Caesarea, which is located right on the side of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, there's two Caesareas in Israel. Both of them are named after Caesar, the emperor of Rome. Uh, But in this case, the one on the side of the, the shores of the Mediterranean Sea is the Caesarea where he would come whenever he had to visit this region. That was his palace where he came to stay. Uh, The other one is located inland, and it's called Caesarea Philippi. Now, in our story, there's going to be two main cities. There's the Caesarea, where Cornelius is located, and Joppa, where Peter is at. And the two are going to come together. But there's about 50 kilometers of distance between these two cities. So that's just a bit of a context on our story. When I first came across the name Cornelius, um, I had never heard it before other than inside the Bible stories. And uh, one day I was working with some guys, and they were all Mennonites, and they were referring to one of their friends as Corny. 
And they kept calling him Corny, which I thought was a little bit odd, and then I realized it's uh, just a short name for Cornelius. You have to understand, I was a little bit young at the time. So Cornelius is kind of the main character of this story, even though you could think maybe Peter's the main character, or even though you could think that truly God is the main character in the story. He was a centurion, which means that he was serving over about 100 men, anywhere from 60 to 100 men. He was a part of the Italian regiment. Um, he was a part of a broader group of people. This was a cohort that would have a thousand or so, and he had just about a hundred of that thousand in this, this region, this area. Now, the centurions were the backbone of the Roman army. And the, the thing we want to understand here is we see something about the character of these men that come out in Cornelius's faith as well. So, as backbone people, they weren't necessarily the attackers or the aggressive ones. They were the faithful, stable uh, they would not retreat type leaders within the Roman army. And so we see kind of something translating to the faith of this man who was very disciplined, very loyal, very faithful in his service to God. It tells us that he and his whole family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So this kind of like exemplifies the way in which he took his discipline in his military practice into his faith. Now, he wasn't only just aware of the God of the Jews. He had come to a place of believing and embracing this God. And he did his best to actually worship him and to seek him. He cared about the Jews and he gave generously to them. And you may remember in the Gospels that Jesus had encounters with, uh, with a centurion. And it, it was also an amazing uh, person because he had such great faith. You might remember Jesus mentioned that. In fact, in the New Testament, it's always when it speaks of a centurion, spoken of in a positive way. Uh, the centurion at the cross, who made that declaration, surely he was the son of God, things like that. So let's pick up our story of this centurion, Cornelius. And one day, about three in the afternoon, he, Cornelius, had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Okay, so three o'clock in the afternoon is one of those regular times of prayer for the Jewish people. And we see that Cornelius here is probably praying and has a vision. Now it's the middle of the day. This isn't nighttime, fell asleep, had a dream. This is daytime vision type stuff. And he's probably like wondering if this is for real. But it says here he distinctly saw an angel. And his reaction to that is one of fear. Which, of course, if you know the Bible, every time it references an angel and a human meeting that angel, there's this fear factor, right? And it's not because they were like ugly or fearful that way. They were great beings, powerful beings. So obviously greater than us as humans. Uh, so there's lots of, you know, contemporary images of what angels look like. And it's probably dead wrong from what the reality is. Cornelius acts on his devotion to God. He's seeking God in prayer. And it seems to be that through that and his almsgiving that he's come up before God. God is taking note of him. And God is the one who is paying attention God is the one who's moving. You'll see that in the vision that God gives Cornelius, there's certain specific things, like go to Joppa, find this guy, he's at the Tanner's house, all that kind of stuff. But what you don't see is the why. 
Cornelius isn't told why he's to send these men to Joppa. He's just told to do it, and he does. Now, it's also interesting to note that these servants that are, are sent with him, they're actually attendants that are very faithful. They're closer to Cornelius than what our English text uh, lends us to understand. We might just see them as servants, but they're actually ones who know Cornelius intimately so that they are trustworthy. They can not only handle hearing this bizarre kind of story that Cornelius shares with them, but also they can be trusted that they will go to this location and then come back again with Peter. So the walk to Joppa from Caesarea would be like walking from Chilliwack to Hope. It's going to take a while, but for these guys, they're really booking it. And they arrive there the next day, right around noon. Uh, by the way, I want to say something about Hope. This last week, it was in the news a fair bit, of course. They took in over a thousand people who were stranded and couldn't make it to their homes, including our own Bill and Joanne Booster, who live up there. They had 21 people in their home for about four or five days, and that's truly amazing, well done. And also Pete and Tracy Reimer live up there in Hope, and they were going to the local church there, our, our sister church, Grace Baptist, and they were helping to serve food and whatnot to people who were at that church. So way to go, Hope. These faithful friends leave around noon that day, or pardon me, around three or four in the afternoon, sometime after that, and, and arrive at noon the next day. So they're really making good time. And here's how it goes. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house, that's Simon the Tanner, where his house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, Peter, uh, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from, from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Now I do want to emphasize God's action here. He is the one who is moving in the vision for Cornelius and in the vision for Peter. And he is the one who is moving to bring about the gospel message to Cornelius so that the Gentiles can be saved. So he's really the primary character in this story. And we may be wondering if God still moves like that today. And we believe he does, right? I mean, maybe not exactly in the same way or exactly that way all the time. But God is speaking to us and moving in us moving us to action. The way I see it working most commonly is when we read the scriptures and the Holy Spirit is convicting us and applying it to our hearts and lives, we then act on that. We, we obey what we read. 
Um, but there's other ways too. We hear lots about these more miraculous kind of dreams and visions that are happening for people who maybe are in a, a country that's closed to the gospel. Like in a lot of Muslim countries, people are having dreams about Jesus. And then they go seeking further truth. Who is this man? I had this dream. And uh, one of the most famous books kind of in our time, there it is, uh, that have been written. It was called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. In this particular book here, this man was just like praying to Allah with a sincere heart. And he has his vision and dream of Jesus. And then he goes seeking to find out who is this one. And uh, the, the principle that we see happening here, like as Cornelius is seeking God, God sends him further information about who Christ is. And we've heard testimony after testimony of many Muslims who are seeking God. And then Jesus brings a more specific uh, news about who he is and what the gospel is all about. So we see that happening here. But you know, I would say that God speaks to our hearts and moves us to action in other ways where we sense him deeply inside of us. And this last week I heard a testimony of a, a woman, her name is Joan Goosen, and she started the ministry called Pearl Ministry, which is a ministry to prostitutes here in Chilliwack. And she was sharing at our ministerial about how God had moved her in the first place to do something about this. And so she was driving through Chilliwack, and she saw some of these women, and deep in her spirit, she said, I heard God saying to me, I want you to help these women. And that was her moment of God sharing with her. Now, she wasn't looking for this. This wasn't in her comfort zone. This was something she felt she couldn't shake. And so she stepped out in faith, and God has blessed that ministry. They now have a drop-in center, where prostitutes can stop in there and find people who are going to love them and help them and help them take their next step. And they also just recently uh, got a government grant where they have a house and it can house up to six women uh, long term. And um, that's going to be opening here in December. But that started with hearing God's voice deep in her heart. And, and I think that we do experience that as well. Now, coming back to our story about Peter up on the rooftop, and he's praying, and he's in a trance, it says, and we're not really sure what to make of that, but probably just simply deep in prayer, right? And uh, I don't know if it was the hunger that brought it on. It says he was hungry, the meal's being cooked down there. I don't know, he has a vision about food. That's always kind of an interesting connection here. But God gives him a vision for a greater purpose. There's this large sheet, or so it looks, with these animals on it. And they're animals that do not fit the dietary laws of the Jewish people. They're not kosher animals. Some of them might be, but not all of them. And so Peter is commanded to eat, and he, he's very hesitant. I mean, in fact, he's like, no way. He rejects it outright. There's no way I'd ever take that invitation. And we might be wondering, well, why? What is it about that that is so wrong for Peter? So we might wonder where this this law comes from. It comes from the Old Testament in Leviticus 11.26, where it says, every animal that does not have a divided hoof or that does not chew the cud or is unclean for you, whoever touches the carcass of any of them will be unclean. So for Peter, all of his life, he's obeyed this command and there's no way he's going to eat unclean meat. He wouldn't even touch it. But the rebuke comes to him from God that you should not call anything impure or unclean that God has made clean. So this vision happens three times, probably because, you know, Peter needs to be convinced of the truth of it. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, the, the vision goes away, and uh, the men that Cornelius has sent are at the gate, and they're calling out, and Peter kind of comes through. But it says that he's still wondering about this, right? He's, he's not convinced or even knows how this applies. He's just had this weird dream to this point. 
And then the Holy Spirit tells him, do not be afraid to go with these men that are calling out to you. So that's really starting to rock Peter's world of his understanding. Notice that Peter does not invite these men into the house right away. They come to the gate and they call out. That's just kind of customary that these people who are Gentiles would know that you don't just rush into the house of a Jewish person. This is kind of understood way of the customs of the time. So they call out and Peter comes down and they have a conversation outside the gate. And when Peter hears from them the testimony of Cornelius and the vision that he's had, it, it kind of affirms why the Holy Spirit has told him that he can go with them. And then the text says Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. So you can kind of see this progression from the dream to the men coming to Peter letting them in. And I would imagine that at this point, it's starting to kind of make some sense to Peter between the dream and the Gentiles at the gate, what is actually happening here. But let's read on. So Acts 10, Acts 10, 24 to 29. The next day, Peter started out with them and also some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea Cornelius was expecting them and had collected, had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when, I, so when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? All right, Peter and his fellow Christians from Joppa arrive at the household of Cornelius, and Peter goes in. I mean, that's a pretty significant step for him to be taking at this moment to just even enter into the house. Now, it seems after meeting Cornelius, and, you know, Cornelius kind of bowing down, and Peter, like, saying, no, 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 that's not the deal. Cornelius was probably just operating out of what he would assume to be proper protocol. Uh, he's had a vision from God. Obviously, God's sending this important person. He's just trying to show respect. Maybe it's a bit more than that. Maybe it's worship. But at any rate, Peter's having none of it. I'm just a man. Don't do that. Um, and, and get up. The interesting thing is that there's an inner part of the house where Peter goes into. So I'm, he, he's, he's going to go meet Cornelius, but he gets there, and, <laughs> and there's a large gathering of people. And the reason why I think this is significant is, you know, it was one thing for him to step into the house. It's another thing to go in and find that you're amongst a crowd of Gentile people. I mean, how is James and the church in Jerusalem going to handle hearing this story, right? But then Peter speaks of his new understanding, his recent conversion experience, if you will, from the vision that God has given him. He says, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or to visit with a Gentile. Now, the Gentiles were aware of this. Uh, they, they knew that the Jews didn't do this, and they knew that they were basically antisocial because of that particular law. Uh, they could maybe do business together, but it was very uncommon for them to eat together. But the law actually never stated that they couldn't eat together. It didn't state that they couldn't go into the house of a Gentile or that a Gentile couldn't come into their house. It was a dietary restriction given to Israel for a time, and it had its purpose— and you can look into that about why God might have given it at that time. And there were certain practical elements that were good for them. And there was also certain symbolic elements as it related to their relationship with God. But there was a problem. By first century Judaism, you didn't associate with Gentiles. You didn't visit them. You did not go in their house and eat with them. It probably was this kind of sense of guilty by association. So it goes something like this. If you go into the home of a Gentile, 
they will probably serve you their food, and it may not be kosher, or it may have been offered to an idol. So to prevent that from ever happening, you never go into the home of a Gentile. So, you know, that kind of association. Uh, the, the food was unclean, and therefore the association was that the people were unclean. I remember when Anne and I and our family were living in Bolivia, South America, um, for a time. They cooked us all sorts of food. And this one particular time, I was really enjoying my meal, and one of the brothers comes up to me and he says, Hermano Rodrigo, Brother Rod, we know that you love us. And I was like, well, this is interesting. Uh, what's he going to say next? And then he said, because you eat our food. You love our food. And I thought about it, and it was like, well, I definitely love certain foods. And I think my strategy was that I would really talk up the ones I loved, and those were the ones they most often fed me. But to be honest, there were other foods where I was like, well, I don't know that I want to eat those. So I think by talking up the foods I loved, they kept feeding that to me. And it is true. I love food. And fortunately, they didn't feed me chicken soup that had feet and chicken heads and stuff like that in it as much. They gave me the stuff I really liked. But there is this close intimacy connected to people and culture that when you eat together, you're accepted. And for the Jewish people to eat together with the Gentiles was probably just crossing a line by association. Peter had finally come to understand, though, that the food was not unclean by God's standard. Therefore, neither were the Gentiles unclean. God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Like, the penny drops. He gets it. Peter then asks, well, then why have you sent for me? And Cornelius recounts for Peter his encounter with God and, and that. And it's like, we're here, Peter. We don't know. You tell us. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. I love this language here because it's completely in keeping with what Luke has also written at the end of the gospel, Luke 24, where he talks about the disciples meeting Jesus and eating with Jesus, and they didn't just kind of see him off in the distance. It was up close and personal. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God anointed, appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is a great gospel message. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Wow, 
what a conversion story of both Cornelius and Peter. Like, this is truly amazing. Think of what's going on in Peter here alone, okay? He entered the house to meet Cornelius, but once he's inside the house, he finds a larger group of Gentile people, and then they ask him to stay for a few days, and he does. I mean, that's quite a vision that Peter has had that has changed his heart from never eating that food, never associating with, to now staying a few days in the home of Cornelius. And you know, the event that tips the scale for Peter, for him to actually finally really truly understand is that the Holy Spirit comes on those Gentile believers in the same way that the Holy Spirit had come on them at Pentecost. Reinforcing the vision that God had given Peter, helping it make sense that these Gentiles are saved through the same faith in Jesus Christ as the Jews have been saved. That they're filled with the same Spirit of God that they, the Jews, were filled with. That there is only one family of God. So much so that the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, 28 could say, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, if you are all, uh, for you are all one in Christ. The gospel message has no boundaries to it. It goes out to everyone, whoever they are. And now I'm sure we have lots of questions about the passage that we've just looked at because it's unusual. There's things in there that we wonder. I mean, where's the confession of faith by Cornelius and the Holy Spirit comes on him? He hasn't even been baptized yet. It seems like things are out of order. And I don't actually know why God has chosen to work in that way in this story. And it seems like Luke is just simply describing the events as they happened without giving any kind of explanation as to why it happened like this or why it happened like that. He's not consumed with an order of events or a chronology of how it's happening. One thing we're going to find in the books of Acts is that these conversion stories are not exactly the same. There's similar elements for sure, but it's not a formula. It's that the disciples were being faithful and sharing the message and obeying God. And then God shows up. His power comes and the spirit moves and he draws people to himself. And so we have seen some of these things that have happened in different ways in which we would normally prepackage it, neat and tidy, gospel language, make sure we get it in the right order and make sure we have the language just right. But I don't think that's what God needs in order to move. I think he's looking for people who are just ready to share the good news about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And God will take care of the rest. We preach Jesus, but God does the work. We love people with the love of Jesus, but it's the Holy Spirit who draws a person to Christ. You know, this is such a good news story, and the word got around. And you would think that, well, everyone's going to love hearing about the fact that the Gentiles are now saved and they're part of the kingdom of God. But it doesn't necessarily work out that way for a certain group of people in Jerusalem and in that church. Acts 11. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with them. <laughs> Talk about completely missing the point here, right? Uh, Jesus once said to the Pharisees, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. And I think we have a bit of that here. As Christians, we can be guilty of doing the same thing. We can miss the incredible blessing of God and what God is doing and changing and transforming a person's life. And we can be picking up on something that we think, well, that's not quite right. <laughs> we can strain out a gnat, and swallow a camel. So Peter, he doesn't really defend himself. He just tells the story. Kind of like, well, what would you do if you were in my situation? I'm just up there praying, and I have this vision, and the sheet comes down, and God tells me this, and the Holy Spirit says go. And I go to Cornelius' house, and I preach this gospel, and I didn't want to go in, but the Holy Spirit was telling me to go in. And then in the middle of my speaking, 
The Holy Spirit didn't even ask. He didn't get me to pause. He comes. And he came in the same way that he came upon us. And after telling that story, then, this is how Peter puts it in his own words, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. See, that, that's the part that tips the scales for him. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter's starting to understand this. Not just as Jews, but the Gentiles as well. So if God gave them the same gift that he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? I love the humility. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Yes, he has. And to us, well, we know that. We live 2,000 years later. We're used to that message. But for them, this was new. This was unheard of. And I think that our message is tucked right in there with that one verse where Peter says, so if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? You know, here's my question for us. Am I standing in God's way? Like, am I by nature of my own prejudices, whatever they might be, standing in the way of God's work in the lives of others? Those of us who have grown up in the church, we can become so accustomed to church life that we forget the amazingness of the grace of God. We forget how fresh that message is. We forget what it's like for it to hit a person who's never heard it before. We become so good at going to church, kind of like professional church goers, and, and our talk too is kind of inside talk, you know. We know how to say things just right. But our minds and hearts are more, more like these circumcised believers who were getting hung up on, on little things and criticizing Peter. Criticizing Peter for going to do what? To take the gospel to the very people that Christ wanted him to go to. So the question I have for us here too is to what length am I willing to forego my comfort zone to have the opportunity to be used of God to share with others the love and good news of Jesus? Like this isn't going to be easy. I mean, I think of Dick and Marianne Westring this very week flying off to Kenya. You know, when Marianne started that work there, I mean, these are people who have real needs. It's not, it's a long flight to get there. The living conditions are rustic and the food, well, <laughs> it might be more like chicken foot soup than it is a steak dinner, right? Like, this isn't easy. Talk about going outside your comfort zone. Or Joan Goosen, living her middle life Chilliwack existence as many of us do and just sensing God and she's like what do I know about prostitutes but she faithfully obeyed and God is using her stepping outside of her comfort zone or even afternoon adventures with Pastor Tim and the team that have been going in there and making connections with kids that sometimes are just a little hard to love and looking for ways to continue that even during COVID or taking Christmas baking to your neighbors to just simply express the love of Christ and to pray for them. Or serving a Christmas dinner to inmates at the Chilliwack Correctional Center. You know, when we get serious about the gospel in people's lives, it gets messy. And you know, when we're in that mess as Christians trying to help people understand who Christ is, we're not, we're not so worried about the things that don't seem to be quite right. We are way more worried about that person knowing Jesus and that we're faithful in pointing them back to Jesus, back to Jesus, 
Every time that there's a mistake, every time they go back to something, just keep pointing them to Jesus. It's not the conversion of Cornelius that I think we need to be reminded of mostly here today, but the conversion of Peter. Because I'm asking the question, what does God want to convert in me so that I become a conduit of his gospel of grace that it could go out? Right? Like, am I impeding it by my own problems, by my own judgment, by my own criticism, by all my own prejudices and biases and whatever it is that goes into my humanness that has not yet fully surrendered to Jesus Christ and needs to on an ongoing basis because we do it once, we do it twice, but it seems to keep resurfacing. We'll do it again. We'll do it again because the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to all people. All people. And to what length am I willing to go that I might be used of God to bring the gospel to them. When was the last time I pointed someone to Jesus? Because you know what? I think I play it way too safe. And I think a lot of us do. We don't take that risk. And if Peter could go into Cornelius' house to share the gospel and overstep that incredible racial barrier for him, surely there is some level of challenge for us as to what God might be asking me to do that goes beyond my comfort zone. And maybe this Christmas, as we look at ways to serve others, you're going to be willing to say, yeah, I'm going to take a step. I'm going to step out of my comfort zone and I'm going to do something. And I'm going to trust that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, shows up and does something. If God gave them the same gift... He gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would stretch us. I know I play it way too safe. I know there's many people that you've moved my heart on my street that I should be talking to, and I haven't yet. Oh God, I pray that like Peter, I'd be willing to obey your Holy Spirit and to step into uncomfortable zones that you might use us to share this good news with all people. And Lord, I pray that that would capture the spirit of the life of Sardis Fellowship, that we would care about others so much that we go beyond our own comfort zones to be able to share Jesus with them. Bless our Christmas this year as we seek to be intentional in doing that as individuals and collectively, I ask in Jesus' name. So these questions that I want to leave with you today are more reflective in nature. They're an application. I, I, I meant to put them up. I think I missed uh, doing that slide when I was reading them earlier. But they simply say this, am I standing in God's way? Am I by nature of my prejudices standing in the way of God's work in the lives of others? To what length am I willing to forgo my comfort zone to have the opportunity to be used of God to share with those others the love and good news of Jesus. And then lastly, what does God want to convert in me so that I become a conduit for this gospel of grace to go up? May God bless you as you reflect on that this week. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.